at Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 33. It should be on the screen. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in, their, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'm going to invite our lead pastor, Billy Glosson, to come up now. And we pray for him and us as we sit under the word this evening. Lord, I'm so thankful to be here in this season um, with everyone, with this community. Um, they've blessed my life so richly in the time that I've been here. And um, I'm especially grateful that we are growing and that we are seeing what you're doing here in Morganton and Burke County. I pray that as we sit under the word today, that you would give us open hearts and minds to hear what you would have us hear. Um, soften our hearts that we would hear the gospel in this passage. I pray for Billy as he preaches the word, give him discernment, give him wisdom, and um, Lord, just I pray that as we continue on in this season that we would remember the gospel and everything that we hear and everything that we do and say and think, and that this word would encourage us where it is needed and challenge us also where it is where it is needed. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we are, again, we're in Ephesians 5, which is a fun passage that everybody's excited about, I'm sure, after hearing uh, the reading of that. Granted, we could uh, literally do a sermon series for several weeks on everything we just read, so there's no way that I can cover the span, uh, the breadth, the depth of everything that's there, but uh, uh, we'll see what we can do. So uh, since having a daughter, I've learned that there is a narrative that is absolutely prevalent in media, and it's this, everybody wants to be loved right? Every Disney movie, every TV show, there is a narrative woven in that we are made for one another. And romance is highlighted even at such a young age. Now granted, I don't even want to begin to think about dating and boys. It makes me kind of want to puke a little. I don't want to do that. But this reality that we are intrinsically created for romance, for community, is true. Yet, half of Americans are lonely, according to a myriad of studies. More than ever, we see this idea that we are uh, called to community, that we're called to relationship, that we're called to even marriage. All of that is on decline in our culture. And we can't help but wonder what's happening, right? What's going on? Uh, in Peter Singe's book, The Fifth Discipline, he looks at three different inputs. Okay, now, that, now I'm getting a nerd out with you for just a second. He, he talks about three different inputs that we as human beings need to survive. So if you've ever seen these logic puzzles on Facebook or wherever, where there's a series of pipes and they're filling up tanks and it's which one is going to fill up first, okay, kind of have that image in your mind. We have three tanks that we need to fill up. 
We need one, the first, which is meaning. Meaning. Human beings need a reason to live, a purpose. So in the Holocaust, victims of concentration camps who survived were not those who were the healthiest, but those who had meaning, those with purpose, with a reason to live. So we were created with this yearning for meaning, right? It says in Scripture that God has set eternity in the hearts of man so that we all desire this purpose. The second tank is community. We were created to have relationships. We were created for one another to interact in community. That's why if you see children who are cared for, loved, they thrive. But if you see children who are given everything they need physically, right, they've seen this in orphanages, kids who are getting fed, kids who are getting all the things that they may need but are not being held and loved, those children die. It's very sad. It really is. We were created for community. And the third tank, the last tank, is freedom. So we've got meaning, community, and freedom. Now, we see that there are those who have a low, uh, low tank on freedom, maybe almost dry. Like, think about North Korea, for example. There was a sense of dread there. People who've escaped talk about how they despaired of life itself. So we need meaning, we need, we need relationships, community, and we need freedom. But here in the West, when we look at these three tanks, right, we see that our community tank is dry, our meaning tank is bone dry, but our freedom tank is absolutely overflowing. Think about it, right? In our world, with Netflix, we have thousands and thousands of options. I mean, Cookout has like, what, 50 milkshakes? Like, there's so many choices all over the place. This tank is not just at the brim. It's overflowing. It's bursting. So this tank is absolutely gushing over, and then we see the tank of community and meaning. They're empty. The issue is that many of us don't want to lose some of our freedom in order to have community in order to have meaning. Because that would mean for us a sacrifice of our freedom. It would mean commitment. And many of us are seemingly allergic to this notion. And what's bizarre is we get this with training. We get this with, you know, I want to lose weight with sports, right? We understand the person who wants to wake up early in the morning to commit to going to the gym, to eating better. But when it comes to similar commitments for community or for meaning, we don't see this. So many say they want this, they desire these things, right? But the reality is it's like we're paying for a gym and never going, and somehow we expect that we're going to be super fit. This passage speaks against this cultural narrative that we need to get more, have ours, and it talks about a life of self-sacrifice where, catch this, we are submitting to one another. And we do all of this as we walk in the Spirit. Today we're looking at a wildly unpopular idea of what a healthy biblical marriage is and how this is founded in Spirit-filled relationships. So our time is short, so I'm just going to jump in and we're going to look first at the bedrock of Spirit-filled relationships. Spirit-filled relationships. Look at verse 18 again with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So Paul, again, here he is. He's putting everything into perspective. He's going to unfold how gospel-centered relationships work. That's where Ephesians is starting to turn. So, right, he's gone through, like, here's how the gospel works. Here's what it looks like to put on the new man, to put off the old man, to walk in obedience. And now he's saying, now here's how you interact with each other. And he's going to kind of unfold this. He's going to move from marriage to parenting to our labor. And he starts by looking at this filling we receive of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, the wise person isn't intoxicated by alcohol. He isn't intoxicated by anything He is filled instead with the Holy Spirit. And this filling shapes all of our relationships, every interaction that we have, and we get this way because the Spirit works through us. And it says this, that it works through addressing and singing, making, giving, and submitting. The idea is that being filled with the Spirit, being filled with joy that comes from God, overflows into song. It overflows into a life that exudes joy. And Paul, he speaks specifically against drunkenness here, which I actually think is a really fitting thing to address. Because when you're drunk, you're not in control, okay? Uh, I can tell you lots of stories about people I've seen who are drunk and how almost none of them involve self-control, okay? To be drunk literally means you have given up your inhibitions, right? You are letting yourself go. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We are self-controlled people, and we are filled with joy. That's what shapes our lives, and it should shape our relationships. Put this in the context of marriage. Right? The holy person makes a person loving, forgiving, peaceful, self-controlled, gentle, and servant-hearted toward his spouse. We need the help of the Spirit to live like this in all relationships, especially marriage. We do. When you get married, you learn something, and it's this. You are so unbelievably, ridiculously selfish. Then you have a kid, and it's like, wow, there's like even more depths of levels of selfishness that I wasn't even aware that I could go to. Yes. <laughs> so, so I say all that to say this. There's a reason probably Paul pushes the life of singleness, right? Because <laughs> it's real hard, okay? It's real hard. When you get married, you learn how selfish you are. Do you think the type of sacrifice that's described, specifically think of verse 22 and 25, is possible at all without the Spirit's help? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Everything in us wants to fight against these exhortations. Now, here's the deal. This applies to every single person in this room, married, single, whatever, because this is about Spirit-filled relationships. So what about conflict? Do you think we need the Spirit's work to reconcile to one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. We definitely do. See, here's the deal. One sinner is bad enough, but now two have become one, right? Even thinking of just living with someone as a roommate who's a friend of yours, right? And you're just hanging out, getting along, and you're just trying to be two Christians, right? You're just brothers hanging out. We're going to do life together. It gets challenging. Then you add on layers and layers upon that in marriage. Marriage is difficult because both individuals fall short of the glory of God, and we need the Spirit for unity, for harmony, and for peace in our marriage and in all of our relationships. So Paul, he talks about this filling with the Spirit and how this overflow results in actions. And where does he go first? This seems peculiar, but he says singing. 
It's this idea that we are a singing people because our God is too great to merely talk about. You guys know we worship a singing God that painted throughout the scriptures or that God sung over creation. We know the grace of God because it makes melody in our heart and it overflows in our voices. We sing, and here's the beautiful thing about singing. It has both a horizontal and vertical effect because we sing to God and simultaneously we sing to each other. It's beautiful. And as we sing, we honor our Lord and we recount the gospel to each other. We make music with the melody of our hearts and the principle for relationships here is clear. Where is your joy found? If it's found in God, it's going to result in thanksgiving. And an example of that is in singing. If it's found in anything else, you'll find out how selfish you are real quick. You see, if we dive into marriage and we start talking about imperatives, again, this is the same thing we've been talking about all along. If we start talking about what we're supposed to do, because most of the time, if you've ever gone to a marriage conference, if you've ever listened to marriage sermons, they're some are really good, okay? Some of them are fantastic. A lot are real bad. Because they're like, hey, here's this one really great thing that I did that worked for this one specific person. You should do the same thing because your wife is totally like my wife or your husband is totally like my husband. False, okay? Absolutely not true. Everybody is completely different, right? I am, so for, I'll pick on me and Hannah for a second. Hannah, when there's conflict that comes up, wants to walk away, catch her breath, be alone. When conflict comes up for Bill, if you want to mess with me, at 5 o'clock or 4.55, right before I'm getting ready to go home, text me and say, hey, can we talk in like two weeks? I will go crazy. I will probably call you. I can't handle that, right? I can't let stuff sit. I'm going to like jump into conflict. I cannot handle it. So I jump into conflict. I'm like, no, we got to work this out. We got to reconcile right now. And Hannah's like, give me some space. Okay, that's just how we deal. So how am I going to take our relationship and apply it to you? Because maybe you're completely different. You handle conflict entirely different than either one of us do. So instead, we've got to look at the Spirit, and we've got to see that we need to not look at imperatives. Here's all the things that we do first, but instead, we've got to remember our indicative, who we are in Jesus, or we will falter. Friend, if you are married, your spouse cannot, hear this, cannot, will not ever give you all that you need for life and happiness. Only Jesus can, period. So if you are married, stop looking for that in your spouse. And if you are single, don't pine after marriage or the freedom of your singleness, thinking that it's going to satisfy you, because it will not only Jesus so fills the heart with his, his Holy Spirit that even the most out-of-tune curmudgeon cannot help but sing. And all of this singing is because our hearts are, as verse 20 says, filled with thanksgiving. And so we are to give thanks in all of life. That's why we gather together as a church to sing, to give thanks. So are you known for ongoing thanksgiving? Or are you known for complaining, for murmuring? For pouting. Because spirit-filled believers are thankful people, not complaining people. When we consider what God has done for us, how could we not live with constant gratitude? How could we not consider who we once were before the face of God and that God has now forgiven us in Christ and then hold that over someone? This singing, thankful, this singing, this thankfulness, it leads us to the final effect of the Spirit's fullness in us, and it's this, submitting. 
Okay, now everybody's really excited about this. Everybody's like, you know what I want to do? I want to submit. I'm super excited about that. So this particular result is important because this idea of submission, it recurs over and over in the following section, okay? Now, before we speak of it in a, in a marital or parental or vocational relationship, Paul points out that we should all submit to one another in the church. Now, a lot of us, when we jump into this and we think of things like, wife, listen upon what I speak, you know, or we think of like a, a parent relationship where it's like, listen, you're six, go to bed, right? Maybe that's just me, I don't know. Or, or, or even our work, right, where we listen to our boss and we just think of submitting in those regards. But actually, all of that is under the banner, the umbrella of submitting to each other. Submitting to each other. And this is so important because some people have sensational ideas about the Spirit's work. But here we see that the Spirit leads us into community where practical acts of love are demonstrated and the Spirit enables you and I to do what is not natural, which is namely love and submit to each other. A further practical note worth mentioning is this. You can be sure that if a person is acting brashly, if a person is arrogant, if a person is self-assertive, they're not walking in the Spirit. So, so the guy who is being, you know, a macho and, and, and domineering his wife and is telling her how to, you know, you need to listen to me, I'm the boss, you got to submit, that's not biblical marriage. That's nonsense. Okay, that, that's just not true at all. That's not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That's not walking in the Spirit. That's manipulating Scripture for your own personal gain. John Stott puts it really well. He says this. He says, The Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, and those who are truly filled with him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. The word submit means to arrange under. It was used in the military to refer to the subordination of soldiers in an army to those of a superior rank. Good soldiers surrender control. They turn loose of their selfish agendas and live in submission and for the good of others. And so it is with the Christian. Christian leaders also humbly serve others, right? There's a sense in which even those in authority submit to their subordinates. For example, Paul says that he was a slave to everyone so that he might win some. Husbands serve their wives humbly and tenderly and are even called to die for their brides. Spirit-filled leadership involves humility as demonstrated by Jesus. Right? Jesus is the greatest example of all leaders. And so we see the motive that Christians submit to one another in the fear of Christ or out of reverence to Jesus. And this is an indirect statement of the deity of Jesus the Lord. We submit to others because Christ is the ultimate authority over our lives. That's why we submit. This does not mean believers live in terror of Christ. Not at all. It means that they stand in awe of Christ, who is the king and judge. And believers stand in awe, not only of his holiness, but also of his forgiveness. That we belong to Christ's kingdom. He is the king. So out of reverence for him, we gladly submit to his rule and we serve others with compassion. And so we continue. I want to turn attention to Jesus and his bride. You see, before we can really die, dive in and talk about our marriages and how we live and focus and flourish in marriage, we have to understand the incredible mystery of marriage and look at Jesus and his bride. 
So speaking of marriage, Paul says this. Look at verse 32 again with me. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Consider with me the pursuing love of Jesus Christ. Karl Barth, who was an evangelical theologian, he was famous for standing up to Hitler. Okay, that's a pretty cool resume, just going to say. Standing up to Hitler, he traveled to America in the 1960s, and he was making his tour through Ivy League colleges, and they said, hey, uh, Dr. Barth, what is the, the deepest, most profound, important theological truth that you have learned in all of your studies? He stopped, he pondered for a moment, and he looked up with tear-filled eyes and said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. You and I can never outgrow the majestic, great, and simple transforming truth of Jesus' love for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The Bible takes this concept of God's love and connects it to the cross of Christ. And the cross is where the master of God's love is clearly revealed. Verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ pursued you to the point of death. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sometimes you and I were so weighed down by our sin that we lose sight of our identity in Christ. We struggle to believe that God actually and personally loves me. We may believe that God, yeah, he loves the world and he loves individual people in it, but we're less likely to truly believe that he loves us. And this is because we struggle to accept that God's love for us is pure, unmerited, free grace. And into this doubt, Paul reminds us of the freeing truth that Jesus loves you. He cannot love you anymore and he will not love you any less. But other times, we're so unfamiliar with our own sin often because we don't really honestly look at ourselves, we don't feel it personally, and because of this, we don't appreciate God's love. We neglect to remember that God's love is not for the undeserving, but for the ill-deserving. That we are all sinners who instead of our deserved death, hell, and the wrath that we're due, we get life, heaven, and love through Jesus. The truth is that you and I deserve love less than we could ever imagine. Yet Jesus has loved us more than we could ever dream. Verses 17 and 19 of chapter 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Simply but profoundly, Jesus loves the church like a groom loves his bride. Of all the images, of all the metaphors, this one connects at the level of affection and emotion, perhaps most effectively. The next time you're at a wedding, 
The next time you, you see couples in love, right, when you see that really sweet older couple that you love to see them hold hands, but don't do any more than that, right? When you see that, when you see a bridal magazine, whenever you see any of these things, it's a divine appointment to remember that Jesus loves his church, which includes you like a bride, right? I think back to my own wedding day. Never forget washing Hannah's feet. The tears of joy, the laughter, how we had a giant pile of donuts instead of a wedding cake because we're awesome and poor. It was great. I remember when I made the covenant to love Hannah and I have loved her every day and somehow I love her more today than I did that day. But I don't love Hannah perfectly. Not nearly as perfectly as Jesus. But knowing that Jesus feels devoted to me as I do to her, but he does so infinitely and perfectly. And that knowledge is life-changing. The image of God's people being like a bride and God loving them like a groom, it finds its origin in the Old Testament where Hosea marries the adulterous Gomer. This serves as a prophetic portrait of God's faithful devotion to his people even when we are unfaithful. The imagery of a bridegroom, it's woven throughout Scripture. We know that history will end with an unprecedented wedding, better than any scene from any movie. Jesus, wearing white, rides in on a white horse to marry his bride, who's also adorned in white. The feast is there. There's a celebration. They celebrate their new life together forever. In fact, every wedding feast, every white wedding gown, they are, they are prophetic reminders of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this image for a lot of people is beautiful. Now, I will say that there are a lot of women I know, this image of Jesus as a groom who tenderly loves them, pursues them, forgives them, serves them, it's helpful. I know that it has been for Hannah. But for me, right, and for a lot of guys, something's a little difficult, right? It's difficult to picture this. We, we like the warrior king picture of Jesus. Yeah, I'll follow you into battle, but... I don't know about Mary and you. That's a, it's a kind of a hard image for us. But I would remind you that the Bible doesn't speak of individuals as a bride, but always the corporate people of God. That we're not supposed to relate to Jesus in a romantic sense, but in a part of his church, submitting, trusting, and respecting his leadership. So we get this picture of Jesus lovingly pursuing his bride to the cross of Calvary, rising victoriously, and he will come one day to win her, to wed her, and there will be a feast like none other. This is the bar by which we set all of our marriages in perspective. And so thirdly, I want us to look at this mystery of marriage. Verse 22. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, that's a heavy passage. We hear this maybe sometimes in premarital counseling. That's about it. Maybe we'll weave a verse or two here or there. But this is not a passage that people love to sit down and look at because this passage speaks of the duties of a Christian wife to respectfully submit to her husband as the church does to Jesus, as well as speaking to the duties of a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, it's important to say that Paul is not speaking about men and women in general here. That's important. He's not talking about men and women in general when it comes to submission, but rather he's focusing narrowly on one man and one woman in the context of a covenant marriage. We, when Paul speaks of submission, he isn't saying that there's this obliteration of self. He's saying there's a deference to the head. And the example is Jesus, right, who shows perfect submission. We think of the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays to the Father and he shares his feelings, his desires. God, take this cup away from me. And yet he still defers to the Father's will. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. There's so many articles, sermons, blogs, books, conferences, and more to interpret and debate what Paul and other scriptures meant by this concept of submission. And we don't have time this evening to wade deeply into this debate, but if you want to look at our beliefs on complementarianism, I'd point you to a couple of resources really quick. One, there's an excellent paper that I can get in your hands um, by the Village Church that talks about this idea of complementarianism, how it works within the church, how it works in our homes. There's also the excellent book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage, both of which are phenomenal. But again, we don't have a ton of time. I would love to jump into this idea of complementarianism, but I think it's important to dive into marriage. And I want to stress something that is simple. Jesus is the head of the church and takes responsibility for her well-being by sacrificially, sacrificially loving and serving her. And a husband is the head of his wife and should likewise take responsibility for her well-being by sacrificially loving and serving her. You see, in this way, the wife is like a garden and the husband is a gardener. The question is not whether the husband should be the head of his home, as the Bible simply and repeatedly says he is, just as Jesus is the head of the church. The question is whether or not is he good at being a head of his home? Is his wife flourishing because of Jesus' love to her through her husband? In the context of marriage, the wife is the one who gets to decide whether the husband is actually loving her well or not. And the husband gets to decide if he is actually being respected well or not. But ultimately, God is the final judge. So our determination of these things has to be in alignment with his word. That's what Paul meant when he says that we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And for those of us who are single, this passage still applies to us. Right? Single men, are you currently loving your potential future spouse by how you conduct yourself spiritually, financially, emotionally, mentally, and sexually? Are you growing in love for Jesus and conducting yourself in such a way that when you meet your future spouse, they will know that you love them before you knew them? You see, in our age of tender, where dating is basically about consuming another person for pleasure, we have to ask, will we lay that to the side and see that we can instead be following the way of Jesus? We could be praying, we could be serving, we could be worshiping. Single women, is your current life a demonstration of your love for Jesus and respect for your future spouse? When you meet your husband one day, 
whether that's here or Jesus in heaven, will he see the way that you carried yourself, the friends that you have, the life that you live right now, that you were respectful to Jesus and in turn to him? You see, friends, loving Jesus helps us to love our spouses before we even know them. Because our love for our spouses, we must regard them as friends. Now, this is, this is pivotal. This is important. I think too often what we do is we get into these kind of topics on marriage. We start thinking about how do we, you know, do this whole thing well. And man, that submission thing, that sounds really outdated. And like, can't we just kind of, you know, be uh, co-partners? Like, like we run a business together and we shake hands and we live mutually and amenably. But really the key that is woven through scripture, that's woven into even our marriage is this idea of friendship. The idea of friendship in marriage that we are molded after Jesus's friendship for us. And that should be revolutionary for us. When's the last time you asked your spouse, how can I be a better friend to you? We're so consumed with, man, I want to become a better parent. I want to be good at my job. I want to do these things. But are we actually good friends for our spouses? And we talk about this idea of we want to love and serve and be people who are, are imaging ourselves after the kingdom of God, right? I think of those, again, who I addressed just a moment ago who are single. Whether you marry someone this side of glory or not, are you living a life that's worthy of the conduct? And then those of us who are married, are we actively seeking and pursuing our spouse to be friends with them, to love them, to deny ourselves so that they might have joy and life and happiness eternally? Man, I want to encourage you guys this evening to have a sense of urgency to grow in friendship with your spouse and with Jesus, that we would pursue this, that Christ would be our guide. Because Jesus loves his bride, he loves the church, and he loves you as part of the church. And I know I, some of this is just really, we think, overly complicated, and it's not. It's simple. But sometimes the simplest things are sometimes the most profound. And so it is with Jesus. His love is freeing. His love is liberating. His love is transforming. There's a deep desire in each of us to be loved, and Jesus alone provides perfect love. Think back again to what we talked about at the beginning, this idea that we have three buckets. Right now, our freedom bucket is just gushing over. You can choose anything. You can be whatever you want. In fact, in our culture, it's all about having your own joy, defining what success and happiness looks like for you. Sin is not seen as an offense to God, but anything that's an offense to my happiness. And so often we buy into this cultural narrative, this lie that, man, I need to get mine. I need to do what I want to do. It's all about me. It's all about my joy, my happiness, my time. And so we carve out these moments and we have this kind of wicked reality where, especially in our marriages, we think that the joy that we're going to have is either some vacation that we put on our calendar and we count down the days till we get to that or a moment in our day, right? When I get 15 minutes to, I don't know what it is, for some of us it's play video games, for some of us it's scroll Facebook, for some of us it's just scroll online and look at nonsense, for some of us it's just watch TV mindlessly. And all of those things will give you some kind of semblance of freedom, but ultimately that freedom is like a shackle that you bind to yourself. And you keep leaving these other buckets of meaning, of community, bone dry. And we have this person that's on the other side of our beds, on the other side of the table. We choose not to love them like Christ loved us. We choose to 
pursue our own means of what we think will give us freedom and define that for ourselves. And I'm telling you guys over and over again and again, I see people whose marriages are in shambles, people whose marriages are just resulting in lots of anger and bitterness and rage, and it's because of all these unmet expectations and unrealistic expectations on their spouse. And all the while, we're not asking simple questions like, how can I be your friend? How can I deny myself like Christ denied himself? How can I love you? How can I serve you? Because we think it's their job to do that for me. May we find the end of ourselves as we look to Jesus. There is a deep desire in each of us to be loved, and Jesus alone provides perfectly that love. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he gives this amazing, incredible declaration of what love is. But in place of it, if you put Jesus instead of love, I think you get a real picture of what love truly looks like from Jesus. Hear this from 1 Corinthians 13, tweaked. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Friends, Jesus is everything. If we want to have community, if we want to have meaning, if we really want freedom, if we want to have renewal in our marriages, it's found in our bridegroom, Jesus. I don't know where you're at tonight, and I would love to just mine the depths of marriage and talk through, yes, all the practicals, but I think we have to come back to this place. Are we spending time intentionally with Jesus? Right? It's how we think back to what Jesus says many, like, are, the way is narrow and, min, and big and long is the way that leads to destruction. A lot of times we kind of read that in this old school legalistic fundamental mentality of there's going to be a boatload of people that are going to hell and only a few people are going to heaven. And yes, that's partially there. But more specifically, it's talking about this narrow way of life. That there is a specific set way of life that we are to live. That the way of Jesus is low and slow. That the way of Jesus is intentional and meaningful and purposeful. So are you following the way of Jesus or are you following the way of self? Whose kingdom do you care about? Do you care about the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of self? Because if you look to Jesus and you find the end of yourself, there you find freedom. So often I've heard man, just countless stories of people who say things like, man, you know, where's God been in my marriage? And where's God been in this difficult situation? And the reality is a lot of times these people are just overwhelmingly selfish. And they don't have the proclivity to stop and ponder all the times that God has been there offering to them the gentle, humble way. Tonight, as you look at your marriage, as you look at your lives, as you look at your relationships, are you following the way of Jesus? Or are you looking to the way of self? We are to live lives that are shaped by the Holy Spirit of God. We are to look at the mystery of marriage that Christ loved and pursued the church, which is us, and then that is to shape this incredible, amazing, weird picture of marriage that we get here on earth. If we want to have renewal in our marriages, it's found in Jesus. If we want to have renewal in our lives, if we want meaning, if we want 
community, and if we want real freedom, it's all found in Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the hope that we have in the gospel. Far too often, Lord, we are so consumed with self. We, we want what we want when we want it. We, we think that we know the way, when in reality, Lord, we are often far from you. Our lives are often shaped, God, by our desires for ourselves, over and against the desires for our spouse to thrive and succeed. We don't look at Philippians where it says to consider others more important than ourselves. We don't consider that. We don't desire our spouses, our friends, and others to grow and flourish and be found in Christ. And instead, we see all the ways in which we fall short, Lord. We are selfish, and we, God, come before you tonight, and we ask for forgiveness. Humbly, Lord, we pray that you would save us, that you would change us, Lord, that you would shape us. God, would you make us new? God, I pray for those in the room who are married. I don't know their marriages deeply. I don't know what they're struggling with on a daily basis. But I know the reality of sometimes marriage is hard. And sometimes, Lord, we don't look to the way of Jesus. We look to the way of self. God, I pray for repentance tonight. And I pray for just simple things like, how can I be a better friend? How can I love you like Christ loved the church? How can I respect you like Christ respected the Father? And that we would, God, in turn, see renewal happening in these relationships. So grateful for the truth that we have in Jesus, Lord. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.